Good morning again. It's a pleasure to be back in the pulpit. We were worshiping in my hometown last week at Redeemer Baptist Church. My best friend there is the pastor, and so had a, a good time and prayed for you all here. And I know you were in good hands with Pastor Doug. So continue John chapter 3. So take your Bibles and turn to that chapter. One of the Probably the great chapters and maybe the most well-known chapters in all the Bible because it deals with the new birth, the heart, what is really the heart of the Christian faith, how we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And of course, Pastor Doug dealt no doubt last week with the Bible verse that used to be, and I say used to be, (laughs) the most well-known Bible verse in America. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, what a glorious verse it is. And uh, what a glorious teaching this morning. We move on to John 3, verse 22 to 30. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by our spirit. John 3, 22, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You want to underline a verse, underline that. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Continues. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray. Father, there may not be any more important verse for Christian living than what I've just read. So God, this morning I pray you give me grace to make this text clear in terms of the exposition but also the application. And Lord, I pray as I do every Sunday that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And God, that you would work in those today who may not know you. No doubt there's someone here, maybe several someones here who do not know you. I pray today would be the day that you draw them to yourself by the power of your spirit, convict them of sin and unrighteousness, and draw them irresistibly and effectually to yourself so that they live no longer for their own glory but for yours. That they would be able to leave here today saying, I must decrease and he must increase because they've received something that only God can give. So God, work in us now to bring about your glory for Jesus' sake. Amen. So what does a successful church look like? Are we a successful church? 
What does a successful ministry look like? Are we a successful ministry? Would you look and say, you know, Christ Fellowship, that's a successful church, and they've got a successful ministry going on there. What does success in the Christian life look like anyway? Well, a few weeks ago at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, a very famous pastor stood before our meeting, not too far from where we were sitting, and told us, recounted to us all the things, and he used this pronoun, that he had done for the kingdom of God. He told about his church, which is one of the largest churches in the country, the thousands he had led to Jesus Christ. He told of the hundreds of thousands that he had raised up in the Lord, mentored in the Lord, that he'd done more for the kingdom of God than all the seminaries combined. Success. He was successful. For seven and a half minutes, he told us this. And there was a lot of applause after he was finished. It's his success. Well, he thinks it's success. And much of the world, much of the evangelical world would say, yeah, that's success. That's what it looks like, having thousands of converts, having millions of dollars in the bank, a large church, and a worldwide ministry. That's success. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? When we see that, no matter where it comes from, if it's genuine, we're thankful for it no matter who does it. And this, to say anything else would be contrary to what we're going to see here in a few minutes. But is that success? Do we need that? Is that what we need to be? If we're not moving toward that, are we successful? We're small. Does that mean we're failures? What does God consider success? Should we be jealous of that church and all the churches like it? And You know, we've got a church across the street here, the fourth largest church in America, and we're thankful for the ministry, but should we be jealous and say, you know what, that's what we want to be like. And until we're like that, we're not successful. I want you to think about this this morning as we, as the scene shifts here in John 3 from John 3, 16 and uh, the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth to John the Baptist, back to John the Baptist. We've seen him already and John the Baptist and Jesus baptizing in the Judean countryside and an argument over baptism, probably Baptists and Presbyterians. I don't know. Always arguing over baptism, right? Over purification, and so this morning, I want to talk about, I want you to think about this issue of success. In the Christian life, as, as lay people and success in ministry, we have a lot of young men going in ministry here, and I want you to think about this. And, and even in light of who we are and what we're doing and what God is either doing or not doing here. In light of the meeting we're going to have afterward today, this is a good time to think about this. I think it's just, God, we can't outdo God. We're exactly where we should be in the scriptures, right? God's timing is absolutely perfect. And so this morning, I want us to see John makes this, makes this confession, this amazing and, and, uh, confession uh, here in uh, verse 30. He says what? He says, I must decrease. And he, that is Jesus, the one who's come, he must increase. How can he say that? How can he say that? Is that successful? We'll see. Well, I want us to see this morning in the text three keys. Can you say that? Can we say that, that, that Jesus in my life and in my ministry, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease? Because I think we've got to be able to say that if we're faithful Christians, even if we're Christians at all. I think that's what we're going to say. 
I want to see three keys this morning to, to, to joining our friend John the Baptist, the first Baptist, of course, as we've been saying here all along, our forerunner in the faith. But this incredible resolution he makes, three, three keys that he, uh, to join him this morning in this incredible resolution he makes in verse 30. Here's my first main point. The antidote to sinful jealousy and selfish ambition, so those two, two key things, the antidote, the cure for, to sinful jealousy and selfish ambition, again, I ask you, should we be jealous of this brother who touted his numbers? Should we be jealous and should we seek that? But the key, the antidote to sinful jealousy and selfish ambition is remembering the source of your gifts. I'll see this in verses 25 to 27. It should go without saying, but it doesn't. And you say, well, why do you say it when you preface it that way? Well, we always preface that way because we need to say it. But it should go without saying that, that petty jealousy and sinful competition have no place in church. And we think that, we say that, but we really believe that. Do we? Because it's far too common among Christians, among evangelicals, among us. It's far too common in my own heart, I'll have to admit. I mean, a clear example of the petty jealousy and uh, the, the old divines called a party spirit. Think of political parties, a party spirit. Not that they're partying all night, you know, not like that, but a party, speaking of your own party, that can exist among believers is found in our text this morning here in verses 25 and 26 because they're having a debate. Again, must be among Baptists because we multiply by dividing sometimes, don't we? And a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew. Again, two parties here, over purification. This is related to baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, you bore witness to him. Look what's happening. He's baptizing. And everyone's going to him. Mm. I mean, what we, we know this because we have the rest of the Bible. What we have here, what's happening here, we know because we've been studying John for several months now, we know that there's kind of a handoff between ministries here from John the Baptist as the forerunner who came to announce the Messiah to Christ, right? You have a, a handoff between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in a sense here. It's kind of how we put the, our Bibles together. John would soon, John the Baptist would soon be arrested by King Herod, but here he was still baptizing in the Jordan River. But when Jesus arrived, many left John and went to Jesus to where he was baptizing, and this bothered many of John's loyalists, many in his party, going to get back to the party spirit. Then, back then, as now, there's a great debate here over the meaning of baptism. They needed Tom Nettles, by the way, to straighten them out, I think. You know, they didn't have him, so there's probably, I don't know what they're debating, but it was over purification and baptism. But what I want you to note is that there's definitely kind of a hot flame of jealousy in the words that John's disciples used. He said, all are going after him. In other words, they're leaving here. They're leaving this church, and they're going to that church. It'd be like us saying, for example, he's literally leaving Christ's fellowship, and they've gone over to Third Avenue, right? Of course, they're going to the Messiah. We know that, right? John knew that, John the Baptist. So they're going over to him. So there's this flame of jealousy here. John's posse it's thinning out. And Jesus' posse, well, it's growing. They're going over there to him. But John knows this is the way it's supposed to be, but not his disciples, not his followers. J.C. Ryle, and you know I love J.C. Ryle because he says it so well, makes me think so 
deeply about the Christian life reading him, but he said the church is never lacking religious professors who care far more for the increase of their own party than for the increase of true Christianity and who cannot rejoice in the spread of religion if it spreads anywhere except within their own pale. I don't mean lunch pale, it means within their group. They seem ready to shut men out of heaven if they will not enter therein under their own banner. They say, well, you know, we don't want them to go in through the Southeast Christian banner or the Third Avenue banner or the Redeemer Baptist Church banner. We want them to go in under the Christ Fellowship banner. That's what he's saying, right? There's far too many of those people. And for honest, there's a spark of that in our hearts too, right? There is. I mean, I'll admit sometimes I'll think, man, our church is small. Shouldn't it be larger? And I start to begin, begin to think I'm not successful. Not, this is, this is, we shouldn't be doing this. Is that, is that success? I think this is one of the chief threats to our usefulness in the Lord, our usefulness as Christians and serving God, a desire for personal prominence that results in this party spirit, personal prominence. There is far too often a sad spirit of sinful competition among Christians. It was there in the early church. You recall in, very famously in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells them, he says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another of you says, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In other words, I'm of the Paul party, I'm of the Cephas party, I'm of the Christ party. If I'm following one of those guys, and Paul rebukes them for that, says, no, 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 we're just sowing seed. Follow Christ. And that's, of course, this is John's point here, here too. If it was bad then, it's far worse now, because we have social media now, right? to brag about our churches. We can stand up in meetings and talk about our churches. Kent Hughes said, our competitive society is structured to compel us to measure our achievements against those of others. Very few things give the enemies of Christianity an occasion for blasphemy like a jealous party spirit among Christians. We see that in reformed circles as well, don't we? In the rise of what I like to call the celebrity pastor. You know, you almost get the notion that unless you have a, a publishing contract, and I write books, so I guess I can throw this at myself, but unless you have this and maybe a million Twitter followers, unless you're involved in the debates of the day, then you're probably not doing much for the kingdom. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend. I said, you know, those debates we have on Twitter, no one cares about that out there. It's like 400 of us <laughs> or 4,000 of us. It's just a few. Out there, where I was last week worshiping, they're not worried about that. They're really not worried about what happened to the SBC angel meeting. And we need to be concerned about that for sure, but they're thinking about baptism, the gospel, these things. They're thinking about just how to get, get by every day, right, in, in life. They're not thinking about that. The antidote to such sinful jealousy and competition is verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even, what does it say? How many things? Even one thing. Even one thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. Where do your gifts come from? They come from heaven. They come from God, right? Not, not one thing. You can't receive one thing. Everything you have, you've been given. This is absolutely vital, in fact, this may be the, one of the most important truths for the Christian life in all the Bible. 
And I don't say that to be to just traffic and, and hyperbole this morning. It may be because we have to remember where our gifts come from. I think it's a great memory verse. You want a memory verse this week? Well, there you go. Memorize that one. Come back next week. Every day. I think everything I have, I've been given. I mean, here's John's point. We must content ourselves with the place and the provision that our sovereign God has given us. What's the problem? We're naturally discontented people, aren't we? We're, it's not easy to be content. I mean, if I had 26,000 people in church, there would be probably, I'd be discontented about that probably. I'd say, well, God, this is too mean. I can't handle this, right? We're all naturally discontented, but we must content ourselves. And I think this is John's point. With the place and the provision our sovereign God has given us, our highest priority in life must be to be faithful to him. You want a watchword for success? There it is. It's faithfulness. Faithful to him. Why do you come back every week and preach for a small church? Because we're called to be faithful, right? Faithful, 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 faithful. That's it. We're called to be faithful. Instead of playing up our own deeds and seeking to make a name for ourselves, we must receive our work from God where he gives it for us to do. I mean, what he gives us to do, where he places us to do it and accomplish it day by day, minute by minute, faithfully. You know, they call William Carey, they called him a plotter. So he said he was a plotter. He said his genius in life was a plotter. He'd win in, he didn't have his first convert on the mission field until seven years. He said, I'm a plotter. But he was, what that means was he was faithful day after day after day. He sowed the seed, he sowed the seed, he sowed the seed. He wouldn't let anything, he wouldn't let anything drive him off the mission. He sowed the seed, he sowed the seed, he sowed the seed. And then a convert. But not a lot of fruit. And yet he's the father of modern missions movement, right? We've got a missionary, David Taylor, pray for David. They're coming back today from the mission field six weeks in Indonesia because of William Carey. That's where it all started. But he's a plotter and he, just, he was just faithful, faithful. And if you have great gifts, and some of us or some among us who have great gifts, great preaching gifts, teaching gifts, gifts for mission field, leadership, service, great gifts for the children, great gifts then they've been given to you by God for his service and his glory, not your service and your glory. For his kingdom and his glory, not your kingdom and your glory. Because you can't receive one thing unless it comes from above. That kind of straightens us out, doesn't it? Kind of straightens us out. If we have modest gifts, you see, and I'm not all that great of a teacher. I'm not really all that good at what I do. That comes from God. Be faithful with it. Use it for God's glory. You say, I'm just kind of modest. You know, it's not as, I'm not John Piper, seminary student. You're not John Piper, and I'm not either. I'm not R.C. Sproul. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Adrian Rogers. I'm not the Apostle Paul. No, they're you. God already had them. He's going to use you. And your gifts may be modest, but he gave them to you, and you use them faithfully. And you know where I'm going to this. The barometer for success in ministry is faithfulness. God weighs success on the scales of faithfulness. And the man who has 27,000 people in his church, he may have been faithful. I'm not saying large numbers equals unfaithfulness. We have some kind of martyr complex here because we're small. I don't mean that at all. That may be faithfulness. What he said, he may just because he's been faithful. I don't know. I don't, I'd like the pronouns to be different. I'd like the subject of those sentences to be God. Look what God did. Look what God did. But faithfulness, 
Success in the ministry, success in the Christian life is measured in faithfulness. Now how big it looks from a human perspective. Because God may be ready to do something big out of the very small thing you give, right? I mean, all the leaders in the Bible, they're, they're, they started out, it was small, they were small people. But as Francis Schaeffer said, there are no small people in God's economy. It's important that we learn from this to distinguish between two different kinds of ambition. There's godly ambition and ungodly ambition. We should all have ambition. Nothing worse than laziness. Spiritual laziness, intellectual laziness, physical laziness, it's all laziness. It's all a sin. We should all be ambitious, but it must be godly ambition. It must be submitted to the scriptures. Godly ambition is, God, ambition is godly as long as it aims at the glory of God. This was the aspiration of John the Baptist. This is what he aspired to. God's glory. I must, I must decrease and he must increase. Here at the height of his popularity, at the height of his influence, when his, when his posse had grown the largest, when his entourage had grown to large numbers, he laid down his ministry. He laid down his reputation. A ministry for which he'd waited his, all his life. He'd be raised up for this, and now he's going to lay it down. He's going to disappear off the scene. We're not going to see him anymore after this. He says, I'm going I'm to go away so that he can be big. I'm going to become small. I mean, our ambition must be for the glory of God in all things. I mean, John the Baptist only exercised his ministry for probably six months. His whole life he was prepared for six months. He had to settle for that. And the world would say, boy, that's pathetic. Well, you did a lot of preparation and you didn't bear much fruit. And John's saying, no, no, no. I know where my gifts came from. I know where my ministry comes from. It's God's ministry, not my ministry. And of course, there's sinful, selfish ambition. It's when I have a passion for my own glory at the expense of God and His glory and the expense of others. It's difficult to see this in ourselves, isn't it? It's hard to see what our motives are sometimes because of our sinfulness. It's a major blind spot for so many of us and maybe even me, and you can tell me. You need to tell me. Because we assume always that our ambition is selfless. We see it in others, don't we? Man, I, again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting the man I open with is ambition selfish. I don't know his heart. I'm just asking you, simply asking you, is that what you must have to be considered successful in the Christian ministry? That's the only reason I use that illustration. I'll let you decide what you think about that. I'll tell you in private if you want to know. I definitely have an opinion. But when I have a passion for my own glory, I'm sinfully selfish. I mean, maybe we're in ministry for all the wrong reasons, but we don't see it. I've gone to seminary with guys who, they just one day said, you know what, I'm not called. And I'm, I'm, go, I'm going to do something else. And you know what? I admire that. That's a good thing. I had a friend, and I was an MDF student at Southern, he said, I'm in this for all the wrong reasons. I'm in, I love intellectual things. I like to think. Reformed theology is deep. Man, I love this, but I shouldn't be pastoring. And he was right. And he's a layperson in his church now and doing, doing great. As he realized, my heart's just not really in this. I've mistaken my call because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know, Jeff? How do I know? How do I detect this? What are the symptoms of this, uh, of this rot in my soul that I don't see, this cancer? Well, I think it comes, you know, I love questions. I love the Socratic method questions, right? So 
Ask yourself this. Am I happy when another pastor's church doubles in size or another student makes a better grade than I do? Let's just, am I happy with the other person's success or do I envy them and I really want to cut them down to size and I want to exalt myself? Am I pleased when people leave my church and join another good, solid church? Doug and Clay and I know that that's not easy. You say, yeah, oh, that'd be fine. Well, you're not a pastor. When people leave your church, oh, let's just admit it. You don't like it. So it's, it's easy to take it. Hard not to take that personally sometimes. I'm just being honest with you, right? When they go somewhere good, you, do you say, hallelujah, praise God for that? Or what if the elders, am I thrilled when they give someone else the ministry that I've always wanted? I say, you know, that guy's going to do a great job. Praise God for him. Or I say, you know what? Those guys got it wrong. Had a man tell me one time, the biggest mistake you've ever made is not making me an elder in this church. Well, that's proof positive you shouldn't be an elder in this church. <laughs> right? That's it. You should seek, you know, Paul said it's a good thing if you seek the pastor, but you know, I, don't know if you, I don't know about that. Biggest mistake ever made. Is our attitude that of what Paul says in Paul 118, or Philippians 118? <laughs> Whether Christ be preached out of pretense or truth, Christ is preached, is proclaimed, and in that rejoice. When the church that maybe doesn't have our theology truly wins people to Christ and they preach the gospel, are we happy with that? We say, praise God for them. I don't agree with everything they do, but man, they've got a robust ministry, and I'm thankful for all they've done. You know, there's going to be a lot of different kinds of evangelical Christians in heaven, Right? Not just going to be us that have a certain view of predestination or, or baptism or those things. You know that, right? I know you know that. But are we happy? Dave Harvey in his wonderful book called Rescuing Ambition, which I, I commend to you. Dave's a friend of mine. Joe used to work for Dave. He said, our willingness to make others success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. Are you willing to be nobody so somebody else can be somebody? So Jesus can be somebody, so he can be glorified. That's what John's up to here. And what a model he is. That's why I'm committing this one. Here's this, John the Baptist as a model. Because whatever gifts you have, be ambitious about what God can make of them and do through them. That's a far cry from the selfish ambition that is more natural to us. Because we love to be admired, don't we? It's why if you know people's name, you call their name, they like it. It's like, yeah, hey, Jeff, how you doing? He knows my name, right? I hear people say all the time, I saw Dr. Moeller and he knew my name. <laughs> it's because we like to, he said, hey, Joe. <laughs> What's funny is when famous pastors get your name wrong. Like, there's a pastor out there, very famous, you know his name, he's a wonderful guy, but he calls me Jim and asks me how my wife Leslie was doing. I say, I'm fine, Jack. <laughs> my wife Leslie's doing just fine. I love that. At least he was confident that he knew my name. But we love to be admired. We're glory hounds. We want to acquire high position and riches and worldly luxuries. And here's how much we love the things, these things so much. It's what tells us how we love these things? What do we do when they're threatened? How much insurance do you have? How many things do you have insured? You can buy insurance or anything now, right? See this car shield. You know, the car shield, I see that every time I turn the television on now. It's like you can buy, your car is 99 years old, and here you can get it for your radio there, whatever. We can buy insurance because that's our stuff, and it matters a lot, doesn't it, to us? John's saying, no, 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 hold it all loosely. Understanding, we must remember that we cannot receive one thing unless it is given to us from above, and we understand that it will loosen our grip on the things that don't matter. 
on everything, on our ambitions, on our lives, because it's been given from above. And Job said what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That must be our posture. Second main point. Faithful service runs on the fuel of joy in serving Christ. I'm sorry these are long. I couldn't shorten them. I tried. I thought just this is the best I could do. The joy in serving Christ merely, and that's a key word, merely for the privilege of serving Christ. Remember where your gifts come from and be faithful in your service because it runs on the fuel of joy in serving Christ merely for the privilege. And I use that term every Sunday morning here when I welcome you intentionally, the privilege of serving Christ. John's prominence was waning. John's fame, or Jesus' fame was rising. John is waning, Jesus is rising. Because John was the forerunner of Jesus, he knew it was supposed to be this way. And far from being frustrated by this, he maintained a joyful attitude in serving the Lord. And he uses this illustration here in verse 29 to show his joy. It's a wonderful illustration. So he's about the, 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 groom, uh, the, the groomsman, or the, 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 the bride, uh, I'm sorry, the groomsman, the best man at the wedding. Let me read this for us. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. And I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He reminds them, I'm the forerunner. I'm not the Christ. And then he says this, illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, okay? One's going to marry the woman, that's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He said, my joy is complete. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not going to marry the bride. And I think there's an allusion to the church here, Christ and the church, as Paul speaks of. That's another sermon from another time. But he says, I'm the friend of the, bride, a friend of the bridegroom. It's called the friend of the groom. It's easier to say, right? I'm, I'm there to support him. I'm not there. I'm not the center of attention. The couple, the bride and the groom, they're the center of attention. Of course, God's the center of attention. I know that in a wedding. But on the wedding day, it's, it's on them, right? It's not on the best man or the matron of honor. It's not on them. That's his illustration here. The best man does not resent the groom. He does not want to be the center of attention. He is there to perform the service Service to his best, the best man, as the best man, to his best friend, and to honor his friend, the groom. The best man shows it's a sheer delight to honor his friend. That's his point. It's, it's his delight, right? You've been the best man at a wedding. You know, I've, I've been the best man at several weddings. I didn't come and try to bring a lot of attention to myself. I love these friends and rejoice that they're getting married. That's his point. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, Real joy comes in being able to say to Jesus Christ, Here I am. Lord, use me. That's it. Seminary guys, listen to that. Here I am, God. You've called me, now use me. Lay Christian in the pew, that's what you say. Here I am, Lord. I belong to you. You use me. You equip me as you will. Take me where you will and do with me what you will. John the Baptist may be the greatest New Testament example of this joyful attitude in serving the kingdom of Jesus Christ it's very similar to King David's best friend, Jonathan. I thought about Jonathan here, son of King Saul. I mean, Jonathan could have expected and surely did expect to ascend to the throne as the oldest son of the king, right? And yet here comes David, the giant slayer. And David is clearly ascending in the eyes of the people. Lesser men would have been pea green with jealousy. 
this guy's taking my spot. I don't want to be the king. Uh-uh, Jonathan didn't do that. He, he didn't play that game. He delighted in watching his best friend's star rise. He was animated by ambition for God's glory and the blessing of God's people. He knew this was God's will. This is what's good for God's people, not my trying to sort of ramrod my way in, kind of strong arm my way into this position. That's my entitlement. And yet that's far more, uh, attitude's far more prevalent among us than is that I'm going I'm to decrease so he can increase. 1 Samuel 18, 1 says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In other words, Jonathan rejoiced in God's blessing on David. He was glad to play a supporting role alongside his best friend if that was God's will. So it is with John the Baptist. Far from resenting Jesus' coming, John rejoiced in the light of the salvation that was shining now into our dark world. He supported that. I mean, the greatest joy of serving Jesus is simply the joy of serving Jesus. My mentor, Tom Nettles, I've heard him say many times, someone said, what do you do for, for a living? He'll tell them, and he just explains, that just means I get to talk about the Bible all the time. He's a church history professor and preaches all the time all over the world. He just says to talk about the Bible, which means you get to talk about Jesus all the time. That's really it. And there's joy in that, isn't there? If there's not joy in that and you're thinking about the ministry, then maybe, you know, you should just think a little while longer about ministry. Just serving Jesus. Because embracing this will make us useful Christians. Whether they're called a vocational ministry or not, it doesn't matter. If we rejoice not merely when our ministry is blessed with success, at least as we see success, as the world defines success, not merely when others praise and approve of us, not merely when the throngs are flocking to our ministry and filling our church, but whenever we have the privilege of serving Jesus, the privilege, simply because of our love for him and how great he is, we rejoice in that. Whether it's at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church or Southeast Christian Church or Third Avenue or, or, or Metropolitan Tabernacle, wherever it is, in Indonesia or China or Africa, wherever. Rejoice because we've been called as Christians to serve Him and to honor and glorify Him. That's the chief end of man, isn't it? And John's getting at that right here and what our lives would look like if we live that way. Remember what John the Baptist earlier said of Jesus. He said, the one who's coming is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals, the string of his sandals. Not, not worthy. I'm not worthy to let him wipe his feet on me. I'm not worthy of that. And when that's our attitude, it changes everything. Because you've been redeemed, beloved. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and called to him to be used for him, by him, and for his glory. Isn't that enough? Or maybe it's not enough. Ask yourself, is that enough? I have to ask myself the same thing. The most menial service, if done in the name of the Lord, should not be beneath any of us as Christians. A faithful minister never says, that's not in my job description. <clears throat> never, never, never. I talked to one of my good friends the other day. I called him. He called me back. I left a message. <clears throat> and he said this. He's a pastor of a growing church. And he said this to me. He said, I'm sorry I couldn't take your call. So I was out, I was out weeding in front of the church. Full-time pastor with deacons and elders. He's weeding in front of the church. Now you could say, well, boy, somebody should be doing that for him. Maybe that's right, but still. He didn't say, you know what? 
I got somebody with that. That's beneath me. No, he saw an 80. He went out and he did that. Something got missed, evidently. But that's it, right? He didn't say, well, I was doing it out there weed eating. These people don't do anything for me. And I was awful. No, 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 no. Just said I was weed eating. What, what's going on? And we went on from there. But I didn't miss that. And he wasn't bragging. <laughs> this is a person very, very close to me. I mean, John, this is John's heart, isn't it? John's joy was especially great, great, especially when God was using him to direct others to his kingdom. And our joy in leading people to saving faith should be equally great. I'm going to be honest with you. We should have filled up Chicago a long time ago. I really shouldn't be begging you to go three months later. I love you, but that's the case, right? We're going to go to win people to Christ. There's a need, a terrible need there. You know what's going on in Chicago? Maybe you think, well, that's dangerous. Well, ministry's dangerous. I've got better things to do. And maybe you do. Maybe you, maybe you can't go. I understand that. I understand. But do we have a zeal, this zeal for others to win others to Christ? I point that at me as much as I do you. That's not in any way, shape, or form trying to make you feel guilty, right? But we've got to think about it. We've got to think about it. I've got to think about it. Do we love the bride? Do we love the bridegroom? I mean, is it simply just for the joy of serving the Lord? I mean, what does that look like? Well, one of my favorite illustrations, a favorite stories told us Charles Spurgeon. A group of American Christians are visiting London for one week in the mid-1900s. Their friends wanted, their friends said, go and visit the two most famous pastors there and, and come back and tell us about it. Some friends back in America, we, so we can't go. So on Sunday morning, they went to visit a man named Joseph Parker. A preacher famed for his eloquence in the pulpit. Man, he could preach it and you would listen. It's like honey dripping from his lips. And the group left following the worship service. One of them said, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt. There, in England's way you talk, you know. There's no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher there ever was. Wow. Well, I'd like to have that said about me, wouldn't you? So the group longed to return. Let's go and hear him again tonight. No, we need to go hear Spurgeon because they want to hear, they want to know about both. And so they went on Sunday evening to Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London and heard the great Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my great heroes. And as they departed, one of them said this. He says, I do declare it must be said for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. What is your life communicating is your life communicating how great you are, what a wonderful Christian you are, or what a wonderful Savior we have? Which is it? What are we in this for? What are we in the Christian faith for? We're here just to be vindicated, just to be validated, to be made much of or to make much of Him. Third main point. And this is important. This undergirds all of it. Humility, faithful service runs on the tracks of joy, right? On the, or on the fuel of joy. The pleasure and privilege of serving Christ for the sake of serving Christ. And thirdly, humility is the foundation for the Christian life, the foundation for everybody of this. Without humility, you're not going to be able to do any of, those, any of that stuff. No, the first two points. Neither of the first two points. Leon Morris describes verse 30 as some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of mortal man. And I agree with that. He must increase... And I must decrease. 
Brothers and sisters, whose glory are you living for? Are you willing to say with John, he must, Jesus must increase and I must decrease, even if no one ever knows your name? I mean, John here, John the Baptist, he refused to compete with Jesus. He refused to envy him. He saw that his ministry must give way to Christ. And in the same way Christians are most useful and who make a difference in the world are resolved to make little of themselves so that Christ will be exalted and believed and followed. I mean, this is the essence of humility. And the way to true honor is to be humble. That's true greatness. Humility is unnatural for us, like giving others the glory, right? It's humility has not come easy. We're naturally arrogant. We're naturally, in our flesh, we're egotistical. We naturally just want what we want. Some of you right now just want what you want. You just want to be out of here. You want to be somewhere else listening to doing something else because this is boring. It doesn't come easy, does it? We're egotistical, we're arrogant. In our flesh, we naturally think highly of ourselves, our strengths and our motives. What are your strengths? You give a job interview. You can talk for 10 minutes about your strengths. Then they say, what are your weaknesses? And you're like, I don't know. I think maybe I'm a little impatient and I'm, sometimes I can be a little cranky. I don't know. You can talk for 15 minutes about your strengths. Weaknesses? Eh. Try it sometime. You think, well, that's not right. Well, that's, I've been interviewed lots of times. I know I struggle with my weaknesses. I can tell you all the good things I do well because you want to know what I do well, right? You're going to hire me. Well, what about our weaknesses? That's humility, isn't it? It takes humility to, to see that. In our flesh, we, want, we think highly of ourselves. By nature, we want to increase, not decrease. Social media has given us a moment-by-moment -moment illustration of just how deep our self-love runs, doesn't it? Just look for five minutes, not right now, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, but this afternoon, you probably already do, you may already have, not right now, and you'll see it, won't you? Now, you know those lives that they make, those wonderful lives and those people you went to high school with, you know that's a lie, don't you? You know it because you're making this nice life on here, so they'll think, man, he's, Jeff's going out, and man, he's been successful, look at him, he's got these degrees, and man, he's, he's rocking it. We want people to think that. I mean, I, in my sinfulness, I probably want people to think that. Because I don't want to decrease. I want to increase. And social media even thrives on that. It, it runs, that's the fuel social media runs on is the, the loudest, the squeakiest wheel gets the grease, right? Always. In controversy, it's always the one that knows it all, that says the, the nastiest things. So just give you a black eye. Man, they're full of themselves. And you can just feel it, can't you? Twitter especially. You can just I have, I did not read it on vacation. I've swore I wouldn't, and this year I didn't. Just caught fish and hit a golf ball and hung out on the beach. Got a sunburn. Forget Twitter. Pox on Twitter. It shows us who we are, doesn't it? It shows the x-ray of the human heart. Because this is precisely what Satan successfully tempted Eve and Eden. When he promised her, you will be like God. Now, see, that's, what, that's the ambition we all, deep down, we want to be. We, God will either be thrown, on the throne of our hearts or we will be. It's really just as simple as that. Because sin makes us like the serpent, always wanting to increase in rebellion against God. Always wanting more. More of me and less of him. I mean, John's resolution here in verse 30 is one every Christian ought to make and it ought to undergird our entire Christian life because it's, it's the very definition of humility. 
J.C. Rawls said, a frame of mind like this is the highest degree of grace that a mortal man can attain. Indeed it is. The greatest saint in God's sight is the man or the woman who are thoroughly clothed in humility, not one who boasts in his or her own accomplishments. This person realizes any accomplishments they come, they have is from the hand of God. Remember listen to Billy Graham talk about his success one time. He was asked by Larry King, how are you so successful? And he explained, he said, I have no idea how this has happened. I'm just a hillbilly from the mountains of North Carolina. He's from not far where I'm from and Doug is from. And he's like, I don't know. That's the right answer. And he wasn't being coy or being super spiritual. He said, I just don't know. I, I'm just trying to serve Jesus. And regardless of what we think about all the fruit there, I mean, there's fruit. Whoa. I love that answer. All of our accomplishments come from the hand of God. As John put it in verse 27, humility is a grace given from above. We cannot contrive it. We cannot work it up. Oh, but it's tricky. It's tricky. Just when we think we become 50% more humble, are we really more humble? We're probably 50% more arrogant. Someone's asked me, you're more humble than you used to be? I don't know. You ask my wife. Always <laughs> tell me, ask her. I don't know. I don't even want to answer that, right? Because I'm 60% more humble this year than last year. That's one of my great attributes. It's one of my great strengths is humility, right? It's not a good answer. I think I've said that before maybe and thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's like being a heavenly devil or something like that. You know, wait a minute. Or jumbo shrimp. <laughs> what? 50%? No, no, no. It, it's tricky, isn't it? Humility grows in direct proportion to the degree in which we treasure Jesus Christ and his glory above all else. Humility grows in us in direct proportion to the degree in which we treasure Jesus Christ above all else. A.W. Pink wrote, The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we see our shortcomings. We see our need for grace when we see the perfections in him. And we delight in him above everything else. In his glory. In his fame, not our fame. God's greatest servants have always been humble people. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses. Think of Job, of David, of Daniel. Think of the apostle Paul. All were eminently humble men. They were different men who lived in different eras, different times, but they were all commended by God and used by him greatly for the one thing they held in common. They were humble. They were humble. Numbers 12, 3 says of Moses, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people were on the face of the earth. Man, wouldn't you like to have that said about you? My son asked me a few months ago, what should I go after in life more than anything else? And I said, humility, without hesitating. I think it shocked him. Humility. Humility. Humility is the key to true greatness. Paul, Peter writes, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, speaking to all Christians, so then Peter, but also to us, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to slap leather with God? I wouldn't recommend that. I've done it. 
just be arrogant and proud and you will slap leather with God. Or once we, my wife asked me, there's a prominent te teacher who's clearly deviating from the truth and using all kinds of ungodly means to promote himself. And she said, you know, it's frustrating that, you know, you and your elders work hard and, you know, you seem to have few people and then, you know, this guy just got everybody going after him. And I said, just wait. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. His day's coming. And it wasn't long until he fell. And great was his fall. And we don't rejoice in that, by the way. Pray for him. This is not something I rejoice in, but you could just see it coming. Because God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. You're not going to slap leather with God and come out of it unscathed. And my prayer is that God will use him greatly in the future. Uh, because that he's done it to me too. I had a hard time one time in ministry for a long time. I'm convinced it's because of my arrogance and my pride and my self-love. Because of what I brought to the table. God said, I don't think so. Everything you've been given, everything you've been given comes from above. Not one thing can you receive. Not one thing can you have unless you receive it from above. The breath you just breathed, you got it from God. He gave it to you. Are you thankful for it? Do you acknowledge that? You got up this morning. That's God. You go to bed tonight, maybe, Lord willing, that's God. You slept last night, that's God. You got money in your account, that's God. I say, what's well, not much? Well, that's God. Food on the table, that's God. A.W. Tozer said, true humility is a healthy thing. I know this is a Sunday for quotes. I've been reading a lot on vacation. Sorry, but just bear with me. They're good. The humble man accepts the truth about himself. He believes that in his fallen nature dwells no good thing. He acknowledges that apart from God, he is nothing, has nothing, knows nothing, can do nothing. But this knowledge does not discourage him. You hear that? You can do nothing, be nothing, you are nothing, but you're encouraged by that. Boy, the world would say, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? No, he says, you, it doesn't discourage him. For he knows also that in Christ he is somebody. You, I'm looking at a bunch of somebodies in Christ. Because of him, by his grace, you're somebody. Because you're in him. He knows that he is dearer to God than the apple of his eye and he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That is, he can do all that lies within the will of God for him to do. When this belief becomes so much a part of a man that, he, that operates as a kind of unconscious reflex, the emphasis of his life shifts from self to Christ, where it should have been in the first place. And thus he is set free to serve his generation by the will of God without the thousand hindrances he knew before. Why are we in this? Why are you alive today? Because God, because it's his, his grace and his glory. That's why we're here, right? If God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If, he, if we must decrease and Christ must increase, then we must busy ourselves pursuing humility. That's what I don't want this church to be known for, humility. As Virgin once said of a pastor, said he's got a lot to be humble about. Well, maybe we've got a lot to be humble about. We should be humble. How do we pursue it? We've seen it here in the text as I, we transition to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. How do we do it? Well, one, every moment of our lives, we live in verse 27. So I want you to memorize this. Commit this to your heart. Write it over the door of your heart today. Don't delay. A person cannot receive even one thing. Say it with me. Unless... Come on, that is pathetic. I know we've been here a while. A person cannot receive one thing unless 
That still wasn't very good, but we're going to take it for the sake of time. Unless it's given him from heaven. Unless it's given from heaven. Everything. Everything you have. We must live in that every moment of our lives. That leads us to prayer and daily meditation on the scripture so we know God more. I mean, John the Baptist models that here for us, this key principle to our, I think that's the key principle to our growth and maturity as Christians, knowing that. And not just knowing it in our minds, but having it in our hearts as the DNA of our lives. I know, I know where my, my, my help comes from. It comes to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's it, every day. Secondly, Remember that you are merely the friend of the bridegroom and you exist solely to honor the bridegroom. You're not the bridegroom. You're not him. This helps kill our selfishness and jealousy and helps us to take joy in the successes of other people and joy in whatever God does through us, whether it seems big or small from a human perspective, whether it's impressive in the eyes of the world or no one notices. Thirdly and finally, remember that you must decrease and he must increase. John's mission is your mission. We exist for this purpose, to live for the glory of Christ, to serve him, to proclaim the good news, to bring the light of his selfless, his selfless humility into a dark and depraved world that loves itself above all things. We pursue humility as those who have been redeemed by the ultimate humble man, the man Jesus Christ, who redeemed us through the ultimate act of humility on Calvary's cross. So we get right back to the cross. That's what enables any humility you have is enabled by the cross of Christ, which is the ultimate picture, the ultimate illustration of humility. As we ready for the Lord's Supper, let's think about this this morning. Examine yourselves. See if you'd be in the faith, first of all, the meals for Christians, right, or the like, precious faith of ours. Where's the idolatry in your heart? Where, where's the humility not growing in you? Where's, where are the weeds of, of self-righteousness and self-love and self-aggrandizement? Where are those things maybe growing in you that need to be plucked out by the roots so that he may increase in you and through you? Where are those? I don't know. Mark 10, 42 to 44 is the essence of how we're to live out John the Baptist resolution. The context of this, we'll read this in a moment as we think about the Lord's Supper, as we examine ourselves. The context is a sinful jockeying for position between two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They came to Jesus and they make the most audacious of all requests. Well, it angered the other disciples, not because they thought it was audacious, but because they were jockeying for position too. It made them jealous. They asked him, teacher, this is James and John, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. See Jesus saying, okay, where's this going to go? Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. <laughs> You're not asking much, right? Just to sit at the positions of privilege and glory in the kingdom of God. And after assuring them that such positions and such seats were not his to give, they were the prerogative of the Father alone, Jesus said this to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be among you. But whoever, and get this, don't miss this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be last, must be a slave of all, the last of all. You want to be great? How do you go high? By going low. You get high in, the, in God's eyes by going down low. For even the Son of Man, here's the ultimate, he's the ultimate pattern here, the ultimate illustration. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This morning we have in this meal, and deacons, you can go ahead, whoever's serving, and prepare to serve the meal. We're just going to do these things together. I don't see any need to do two different separate things here. The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. So we could be set free from self-love and selfishness and selfish ambition and 10 million sins beside. All of them that make much of us and very little of him. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Is the cry of your heart this morning that you must decrease and that he must increase? As we think about this meal, let's, let's ponder that this morning. The world should see humility and profound joy that comes, emanates from us the privilege of being Christ and serving Christ. And this will rescue us from the pressure of seeking success as the world sees it, building our own little kingdoms, and enable us to be salt and light for a world that's watching and desperately needs humility, the humility of Christ. Let's pray together and we'll pass out the elements and I'll explain the supper further. Father, what I have preached this morning is impossible. For as your word tells us, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Make us humble. Make us holy. Give us a passion for your glory that will not sleep, that will not dim a fire, light of fire in us for your glory that will not go out. Shut up a fire in our bones. Cause us to hate selfishness and self-centeredness and love humility. To prize it above all else. Even as we prize Christ above all things. Oh God, prepare our hearts this morning to take this meal. Nourish us afresh. As we ponder the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' name, amen.